turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 1. You will need your hard copy Bible or your electronic version, whatever you've got, uh, because we'll look at more verses than I have listed. I just have uh, some of the key passages there uh, to open with as I read uh, the last four verses that we'll be studying from Isaiah 1, 2 through 20. So be prepared with your Bibles in hand as we walk through this passage together. I want to uh, give a little bit of uh, explanation for uh, our process as we understand Isaiah's prophecy and how it applies, particularly for us, the people of God today. Uh, Isaiah was written 700 years before the time of Jesus, so we are able to read Isaiah through the lens of Jesus, the one who Isaiah prophesies coming. Uh, and so we want to have that perspective as we look at Isaiah, which I think is an enhanced perspective compared to those who first read it. Uh, salvation is always by faith in God's Redeemer. There's never any other way a person can be saved this side of the fall. So our counterparts in the Old Testament, they looked ahead to the fulfillment of Messiah's coming in his work on the cross for their salvation. That's how any Israelite was saved. Uh, for us, we look back at the finished work of Christ and trust in him. Now, there's a difference in the audiences because Israel is a nation. The people of God were confined to a nation at this time, a nation that was ordained by God to bring us the word of God, but also and to reveal God, but also to bring Messiah. And so it wasn't planned that it would always just be this nation. It was planned by the covenant God made with Abraham that all nations would be blessed. And that's the that's where we live now. We're able to see that have, have, has, has expanded beyond just one nation. So it's important when we hear Isaiah speak in national terms that we don't think what he means is America. That's not what he means. He means the people of God. He's talking to the covenant people of God, which is different than the way it was when it was just a nation. So we need to see this as speaking to those who call upon the name of the Lord. We believe in the God of Israel through Christ. And so when he speaks to us collectively or corporately, he means the people of Christ. So individually, we're saved by faith in the Messiah. Corporately, God will speak to us in terms of our obedience. And we see this right away with Isaiah. He'll talk in a general term about the obedience or lack of obedience in the people of God. And unfortunately, Israel shows a history of failure. Uh, they're living under the revelation that they had received at that point the covenant with Moses, and they fail at every point to keep God's law, the whole of his law. And so this continually uh, besets them, and God calls to them, and we can picture there how we struggle with sin. We can understand the struggle with sin. We praise God for Christ having come and his spirit has been sent, but we can certainly relate with any sin that is mentioned in the Old Testament and how it would beset us even now even Christians, even people who have been believers for a long time will struggle with sin that creeps up and it brings misery because that's what sin does and it brings God's discipline because he loves us but it also brings that correction and the salve of the gospel again. The gospel is never old even for somebody who has been a believer for a long time because we all need to be cleansed. Maybe for the first time but there are ways in which we are cleansed over and over again, not for salvation now, but for continued fellowship with our God. And this is how we understand Isaiah's prophecy to the people of God. Here as I read, 
16 through 20, that the verse is printed there on your insert. God's word says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us pray. Lord God, as your people, we confess a constant propensity to make excuses or simply refuse to see the seriousness of our sins. We know our sins are forgiven in Christ and So we can sometimes lose diligence in fighting the sins that beset us. Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for some time, please shake us free from the seeming protection of our excuses. Give us honesty and clarity about our sin so that we might be renewed today by the gospel. For those who have never trusted Christ, I pray that they would be compelled by your spirit, by your word, to rest in Christ for the cleansing that we all must have. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah, one of the many prophets in the Old Testament, the evangelist of the prophets, although you can say whatever the prophet's message would be, it would point back to trusting in God's provision of a Savior. Isaiah, though, thoroughgoing, uh, pointing back to Jesus in a way that no other biblical writer perhaps does, even 700 years before Jesus is born. Yet at the same time, Isaiah is as honest as any prophet. In any evangelist about what befalls us, what besets us, sin. Not a popular topic, but it's the one we have to hear in order to appreciate the gospel itself. Many years ago, Uh, When I was playing soccer in college, there was a friend of mine on my team who got stomped by an opposing player. It wasn't a dirty play. They just ran into each other, and the guy came down on my friend's foot with one of his spikes at the end, uh, one of the cleats at the end of his uh, shoe came down on my friend's big toe, right in the middle of the big toenail. And he was hobbled. I saw it happen a bit. I didn't know how bad it was. I thought, okay, we get stepped on all the time. That's what happens in a game where you kick stuff. So... He goes off, and you can't get many subs. It's not like other sports. You only get a handful of subs in soccer. And so he goes off, and I'm a little bit miffed because we need him out there, and I'm like, come on, your foot hurts. Get back out here. All our feet hurt. Turns out he could barely walk. I see him on the sideline. I'm thinking, did he break his foot? Did something terrible happen? I see a sock off trainer look at him. He's not coming back to this game. So after the game, I, I looked at it, and I could see it was swollen underneath, but the top of the nail was already dark and nasty looking underneath the nail. You know how that's happened before, maybe to you? Maybe you hit your thumb with a hammer or something? Well, he's barely able to walk. It hurts so much. He can't put any weight on his foot. He goes to bed that night. He can't sleep all night. The next morning, he calls me. He goes, I still can't even put any weight in this thing. It's killing me. I can't go to sleep. I said, let's go down to the trainer and see what he thinks. That guy always has some way to make us better. So we go down to the trainer. The trainer looks at it, hardly says a word, and I kid you not, 
he goes into this metal cabinet and pulls out a Black & Decker drill. I'm serious. And he puts a fine drill bit on it, and he puts the drill on my friend's toenail and drills into the toenail until it breaks through and relief. It oozed through with what would already look like infected fluid. How's that for nasty? You know, the work of the prophet with the people of God is sort of like the trainer. Using a quote of a commentator that I tweaked for my illustration, with Isaiah, we have the drill of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. That's what the prophet does. The prophet brings the truth about a great many things that we have to acknowledge, that we have to see, that we have to admit, that we have to grasp. And in so doing, begins a process of cleansing that comes to us. Now, I'm talking to people who are believers here. I know there are probably people who are not. But there's still the same cleansing message that comes to us. Not that we're saved over and over again, but you know as a believer that even though you grasp Christ's redemption for you, you believe it, you still struggle with sin. And even as a believer, you might try to hide that or you might try to put that away or act like it's not true or make excuses. Now, I know if that's you, you're miserable right now, especially if you're God's child, because he loves you, so he disciplines you so that you will confess what's true, that you will lay hold again in a refreshed way the truth of the gospel. Now, maybe you've never laid hold of that, and you're there in your guilt and your shame, or you just don't think there's anything wrong. Like the rich young ruler, I've kept all the commandments. For you, the Holy Spirit has to do a work when you hear the word to believe the truth that's said in the word, and that's what God will do if he wills. And he'll open your eyes, and you'll see this truth, and it'll be like that drill going through. And that's what we have before us today in this message of the prophet. Truth about our sin will lead us through a process that culminates with the cleansing grace of God. If God gives us conviction for our sins, he will follow that work through to full realization of what we have in Christ. It gets shadowed over in our lives because we're sinners. But that truth, that reality, the truth about our sin leads us through a process that culminates with the cleansing grace of God. That's the only place we can go when we recognize our sin is to God's grace in Christ. Let's look at the passage. We'll start at verse 2, and you'll see the prophet lay out the truth for us. The truth about sin and rebellion is revealed as he speaks to the people of God in verses 2 to 6. Isaiah is an evangelist. He points people to Christ. That's the purpose for his revealing this truth. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Already you have kind of this hearkening back to Genesis 1, where God created the heavens and the earth. They predate us. Uh, they're, they're inanimate. They just, they're there, and... He's speaking like as a, in a court. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Isaiah, in this introduction to his accusations or stating of the way it is, uses a formula that would be recognizable to the Israelites for sure. It should be to us. It started with Moses when Moses in Deuteronomy 32, for instance, he says it in other places. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth 
hear the words of my mouth, and then Moses speaks. It's a prophetic formula to let people know the prophet's speaking now the word of God. It's not the prophet's own word. It's God's will now being revealed. And that's what we have in verse 2 as Isaiah begins his prophecy. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God refers to his people as his children, even in the Old Testament. Not as pervasively as we see in the New Testament, as we understand adoption really laid out for us, but God considered Israel his adopted children. He called Abraham from the, from the nations uh, and made him his child, gave him faith to lay hold of him and follow him. And to this day, even here in Isaiah's time, he refers to them as his children. Now they are his estranged children, his wayward children. But children nonetheless. Now look at what he says concerning his children. It's not flattering. Verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people do not understand. So he's saying, in essence, oxen and donkeys have more appreciation for their respective masters than Israel does about their father. Really, you could go further. You could say that oxen and donkeys have more understanding or discernment than Israel. Calvin said they were bereft of their senses. Despite centuries of God's marvelous grace, they were so spiritually dull that they no longer acknowledged who was their sustainer and savior. And that always leads us to sin. When we don't acknowledge who God is, who the only God is, it leads us to sin, rebellion, and estrangement. And that's what we have. The truth about sin is that it compounds or heaps on blindness and dullness. Verse 4, you see this exasperated tone in the first word. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You could sense the exasperation in Isaiah as he says this. Uh, there's pity in his expression. You know, um, as I think of this description for God's people, a people laden with iniquity, speaking corporately to this wayward uh, nation at this time, the people of God characterized this way. I thought of just uh, a week ago or so, I was moving uh, these huge bricks from one property to another over to my house to make a garden out of it eventually, a raised garden out of it. And they're these big, long bricks, just like the ones that were used to make some of the basis of this building. They're from that stockpile that we had for a while. And I made one garden and wanted to move it to a different place. And I'd forgotten about how it was to move that much weight in my truck. I thought the truck's beefy enough. It should be able to handle this. But it didn't take but two layers. And the truck is weighed way down. It's just super heavy. You can't lay that too much weight in the back of the truck. It becomes difficult to drive. Not just a matter of pulling it, but you can't steer it just right. And it's kind of dangerous. It, it becomes uh, really limited completely by the weight that is weighing it down. And when Isaiah describes the people of God at this time, you get that kind of picture. A people burdened with weight that causing them uh, to be laden with something. And it says laden with iniquity. Their offspring, their parents were evildoers, so that beget what they were doing. And also, they are multiplying that with their own children when you see that they have children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. Uh, Yahweh, their covenant God, 
They have despised the Holy One of Israel, their covenant God, this personal name for God, and the Holy One of Israel, the same person, the same God, and they have despised him. They're utterly estranged. It's important for Isaiah to begin his prophecy this way, and it's important for us on a regular basis to be reminded of why the gospel is so great and why we need it so much, and why it's so life-changing, why it's so life-impacting, because it saves us from our sins. It saves us from the reality of what is described here. We have to bring that message, because that's the Scripture's message, so that we might lay hold of the gospel. We might understand why we need it. And we may realize there's nothing we can do to produce this good news. It's God's good news that he works belief in us to lay hold of, and we only get it when we see how bad sin is, and that's what Isaiah is laying out. In fact, Edward Young, in his uh, commentary on this, says very well, there can be no greater mistake than to minimize the sinful condition of mankind in our Christian preaching and activity. I think that's one of the big errors of the modern era. We don't want to preach about sin or negativity because, you know, we don't want to bring that negative message. It might make people feel bad. And so we just talk about Jesus, and it may be in honest terms about him being, uh, being our Lord and Savior, but what does Savior mean to somebody if they don't understand what they should be saved from or what they have to be saved from? Uh, so we have to bring the message of the truth about who we are, corrupted by sin, in order to fully appreciate the gospel. And for those who've been believers for a long time and know they're cleansed by the blood of Christ, but you understand the battle you still have with sin, and you have to go back to the same place that you started to regain, if you will, that growth in Christ, and that is what God has actually done for us in Christ. We have to revisit that gospel over and over and over again. It's still the same message as many years as you've been walking with Jesus that will help you see victory over sin. That's why Isaiah lays it out the way he does, and we see this process work itself out in the book and be fulfilled ultimately when Jesus comes. It says in verse 5, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? He's not asking as if to get an answer. He's saying he's about ready to tell them why. The reason why they're struggling so badly with sin. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. There's a radical depravity that describes the people by the prophet. The whole head is sick. That's a pervasive extent of corruption bound up in humanity. It's true of who we are apart from Christ and God's work. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. It's not just the head that's corrupted, but the heart. It's thorough corruption from the sole of the foot to the head, sick, infected, oozing, untreated. And that all only gets worse if left untreated. This would be vivid for anybody living in antiquity. It's vivid for us. We can picture this. We know if you don't treat a wound, it's going to get infected and grow worse. But it's all the more serious if you have wounds on your feet and you depend on walking places or working in a job or a vocation where you have to be healthy. You can't have cuts and bruises and sores. You have to treat those. And they're saying, no, you're, you're corrupted from the beginning, to, from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, and it's not being treated, and it's, it's, you're just, it's festering. That's where you are. That's what he's calling them out to understand about themselves. Well, there's more. In verses 7 to 10, he gives us the truth of what that sin leads to. It's misery 
in discipline, God's discipline. It's discipline that God brings because he loves his people, but it's discipline that it draws out when we can persist in sin. Verse 7, he speaks to the people of God saying, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Now, remember the situation. Israel at one time was one nation, but shortly after uh, Solomon's reign, there was a division that occurred for many reasons, but it became the north and the south. Now, it was always understood that they were kinsmen. It's not that southern, the southern kingdom thought of themselves as distinct necessarily. They were under different governances, but they were the people of Israel as a whole. Uh, hopefully, you, uh, being united again would be the desire of any Israelite, I'm sure. But the fact is the northern kingdom operated on its own and was making treaties with other nations, violating God's covenant in many ways. The south doing the same thing, just not to the same degree as the north at this point, at least not yet. And so the southern kingdom watched as the Assyrian power took over the northern kingdom and laid waste to the cities and made slaves of many of them, took captive the land, pillaged the land, and occupied the land, and started to make forays or raids into the south. So Judah, the southern kingdom, could see what had happened to the north and recognize the disciplining hand of God upon them and coming to them too if they did not repent. That's the message of Isaiah. We must repent or we'll be just like the northern kingdom. That's the result or the discipline they received. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Now, this is a message to the people of God, and it's true for us to hear. But recognize on any national level, God only allows sin to compound for so long before he brings his judgment. You remember with Canaan? He let generations go on with Canaan, uh, the Canaanites, before Israel was allowed to take that land. Israel was used by God to bring judgment to the Canaanites for their iniquities, part of the plan of God. So it is a message to the nations, too that you cannot persist in the sins that Israel persisted in for very long before God will judge on that level as well. But back to what is at focus here. And the daughter of Zion, verse 8, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a, a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. The booth in the vineyard and the lodge in a cucumber field refers to these temporal transient buildings that are often built or were often built in these agriculture fields for the purpose of watching over those fields when it was harvest time to keep people from coming and stealing. So now they were like these booths, in a sense, watching the pillaging go on and being really unable to do much about it. Uh, Certainly not a bulwark, not a kingdom, uh, not a place that people didn't mess with, but this transient little shack in the middle of something that was going to get pillaged a besieged city, powerless, non-impacting. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he's saying that if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah was. We too, like the northern kingdom was wiped out, we would have all been wiped out if it weren't for the fact that God spared us. And then, to make sure they understand how serious this is, that they could still become like this, he calls them this. This would have been incredibly shocking, knowing the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we know it. 
imagine from their perspective now, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. What did he just call us? Can you imagine them saying, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. We better listen unlike Sodom and Gomorrah listened. Thank God for his grace, even in his discipline. But see how his discipline is inevitable uh, for his people when they persist in sin. Now look at verse 11 down to verse 15. We see what was also happening, which is an evidence uh, God can see our hearts. No matter what we do outwardly, God knows what is happening inwardly. And he addresses what was going on. The institution of worship that God had ordained in his law was still happening. We see that. But God is saying that in your sin, in your unrepentant, unconfessed sin, stop giving me that empty worship. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. We can understand there must have been lots of sacrifices being given. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. So they were giving high offerings. They were giving top-notch offerings. Even in the midst of their unconfessed and unrepentant sin, they were carrying through the motions of worship. This is an important message for us. We can't come to God and worship, formally or otherwise, thinking we can hide from God unrepentant sin. And that's what he's calling out. You're living in all these ways sinfully. You see what's happening in the north, yet you're going through the motions in the temple just like nothing's wrong, like our relationship is fine, like you have been obeying my law when you haven't been, when you've been like you've been listening to my law when you haven't been. It says in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. He can't take it anymore seeing them fake their worship because they're not really uh, devoted to God because of the sin that they're living in. It's not just that they're sinners, brothers and sisters. We all are. But here's why we walk through a worship process like we do. We do so so it helps all of us collectively prepare to meet God in fullness. And so we have a a process where we, at first, we have a sense of the otherness of God, the holiness of God. We desire to be with him because he's called us to worship. He's placed his spirit in us to desire this. But we have to be confronted on a regular basis with his holiness and our sinfulness, and our response should be to confess our sins. And then when we confess our sins, we hear the promise of the gospel repeated to us in some of the many verses in Scripture that teach it, And then we have a sense of relief about the fact that we've been honest about our sin. At least on a collective level, we're all saying that prayer together, admitting that there may be sins we don't even know about. We want God to bring those to light so that we can bring them to him, knowing that as we confess them, he is faithful and just to forgive. And as Christians with their their father, we're able to talk that honestly. We walk through that process in worship so that we don't run the risk of refusing to admit sin or hiding sins, not repenting of sins. Because if you come to God unrepentant, whatever you do is vanity. You have to be in Christ to bring it to God in offering. And to be in Christ means we have to admit our sin. We have to trust in him. We have to turn from our sin, turn to Christ. That's a work of God's grace, no question. But that's how we are cautious, if you will, about entering the presence of God. And they, according to this testimony that we're reading, were not doing this. In fact, they were making up their own stuff 
to add to what God had prescribed. And why do we know this? Well, it says in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. God appointed some, some festivals and feasts that were outlined, and they're his. But he's talking about something else here, and it's not like there's something wrong with traditions that we may have, but when they're done in vanity, that's the problem. And they're adding this to what God already prescribed, which they weren't doing in the right way either. Your new moons, verse 14 says, and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God can't take it anymore, almost, in human terms. Then it says in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. They were in a state of unconfessed sin. They were guilty of sin and would not admit, confess, or repent. They did not come to God in worship with contrite hearts. In fact, it says their hands are full of blood. Commentators are a bit split over what exactly it means. Some say it could mean uh, they're going through the process of sacrificing and they have blood on their hands, but they're not really repentant, and so that's what the blood is. Others say, and I think probably is a better answer, this has more to do with their national blood guilt over things they were doing. It's well noted that, that they were sacrificing children in the northern kingdom. That's something that Israelites were tempted to do with the other nations over and over again. And so there could have been this going on in Judah. We know it does happen later. And so maybe he's just calling them out for their, their blood guilt or the way they're oppressing people within their, in their own nation. They're not taking care of the least of these, as we see in a bit. They're guilty of violence in some way. And God can't take it when they hold their hands out in prayer and their hands are full of blood. We see this heart worship matter come up in Scripture many times before and after this. In 1 Samuel 15, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. It's not that they shouldn't sacrifice. It's that they should come understanding that the sacrifice is a picture of their need for the forgiveness of sins. If you bring a sacrifice, but you don't think you're sinning, it's vanity. So come understanding the gospel. That's what he's saying. You don't understand the gospel if you bring it without understanding your sins. There's a call to repentance that we find here, too, a turning away from sin and unto God and the salvation he provides. The whole of the book gives us pictures, so at times we'll be in these little sections and we have to go ahead to understand the resolution. And that, I think, is the right way to study this prophet. You can't just take five verses out. You won't have the resolution that he builds up for in several chapters. So at times we'll do that. But recognize what he's calling for in verse 16 and verse 17. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. So he's saying in this sinful state that you are, turn from this. And it's not to imply, it wouldn't match with anything else, that you can apply a washing to yourself. You go to where you can receive that cleansing. That's, when a child comes and you see they're all dirty and you say, just go to the tub. They, they don't clean themselves as such. It's the tub where they receive cleansing. And this is the idea that he speaks of. We all need the Lord's cleansing. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Uh, Wash appears 73 times in the Old Testament, that imperative, that description. 
52 refer to ceremonial cleansing, the kind of cleansing necessary before coming to God in some form of worship or offering. It, it denotes the fact that we are impure and we need cleansing, and it pictures the cleansing that only God can provide through the righteousness of his perfect son. That's why it's used so often, this washing or cleansing picture, to remind us of what we all need. Before we can be cleansed, we have to acknowledge our need of that cleansing, and that's what Isaiah is doing by applying this drill, if you will. It says in verse 17, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. These are all themes that will recur and we'll come back to them. We can imagine the kinds of sins they were committing by what Isaiah tells them to stop doing. Stop doing evil deeds, bad things, injustice, oppression, neglecting orphans, neglecting widows. Bottom line is, a nation described like this were living for themselves. They were ignoring the least of them, the least of these in their midst, or worse yet, they were oppressing those very people, which is something God cannot stand. Injustice and oppression against those who cannot defend themselves. Notice the commands of these verses, verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make clean, remove evil, stop evil, learn good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to orphans, plead the widow's cause. This is all, here's your sin, turn from your sin, turn away from your sin, turn away from these things. That's what repentance looks like when a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, and because of an apprehension or a conception of the mercy of God in Christ, with grief and hatred for sin, turns from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. That's what God's gift of repentance looks like. And salvation is the end of what repentance does. Repentance and then faith in Christ. Sorrow for sin, a turning from it to the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. That's what Isaiah is driving towards and what he'll build towards when he gets to the later chapters and what we know looking through the lens of Christ now. Salvation. We see it in verse 18. Come now, in light of all this, come now. Let us reason together. Let's be reasonable. Let's admit what is true, what we must do because of what we now know. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, and they are. I mean, they are distinct and obvious. They're scarlet, a bright color in antiquity. They didn't have pastels everywhere in antiquity. Scarlet was a natural bright color that recognized the seriousness of their sin. It associated with death being close to blood. They shall be as white as snow. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, crimson, they shall become like wool. Snow and wool, probably two things in antiquity that would be associated with white. I can't think of anything else that would be. The two things that are most obvious, crimson and scarlet, they see those colors, and then white. And they would be white. They would be pure, unstained. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah is building towards revealing the answer for our sins in his prophecy. 
It's not that they'd have no conception, though, because they had been doing these sacrifices for all these many years. They would have had a picture of the blood of Jesus that would have to be shed. A a, a spotless lamb used for the sacrifice would picture this very thing that Isaiah is bringing to pass. Not suggesting the gospel just becomes new now. It's always been since the garden and God pronounced it. But now there's more clarity coming about who Messiah would be, what exactly he would do, who he, what he would look like. And, and Isaiah is starting to give them this hope, the hope that we still lay hold of looking back at Christ's coming, and we look forward to his coming again, and we rest in him and his finished work. Isaiah 53, later in this prophecy, tells us of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Old Testament saints look forward to this cleansing as we look back at it and we think of some of these New Testament passages that mean so much more as we understand what Isaiah is picturing and as we our understanding of what the Old Testament looks forward to. In Hebrews 9, Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They understood this. But the final blood that would be shed was still to come, and it would bring them the cleansing they needed. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. This is before the Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish, received the message of the Messiah. Having no hope, Paul says, and without God in the world, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We all need cleansing, and it comes through the blood of Christ. This is what Isaiah gives us as his message in another place in Ephesians. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It's true, all these transgressions, these iniquities, these sins— But we have forgiveness for them. We have cleansing for them by the blood of Christ. In Revelation, John writes, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, brothers and sisters, it says also in one of John's books, 1 John, If we confess our sins, it's true for all of us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, the message of sin is a tough one, but the message of God's grace in Christ is a glorious one. And we only see the glory of it when we recognize what he has cleaned us from. So with that, come, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What result comes from this, as Isaiah describes in verse 19, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Now, I want to be clear here. He's talking to the people of God. And he's saying that there are blessings that come from obedience. This is not salvation by obedience. This is obedience as the result of salvation that will lead to temporal blessings. And that was true for Israel. 
Uh, They may have been personally saved, meaning that individual Israelites may have trusted in Messiah, but the nation as a whole were disobedient to God, and as a result, they lost blessings, namely the inheritance of the land. They were losing it. Now, God uses this prophecy with Isaiah to give more time, and there's some great things that happen in the ministry of Isaiah with the kings and the people. But by and large, the story of Israel over and over again is failure to follow God's law until Jesus. He's the only Israelite who ever does. That's why we are sons and daughters of Abraham in Christ, receiving all the promises of God through Christ. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. What does this mean for us? It means this simply. If we sin as believers, it's not that God throws us off and we're not saved any longer. It's that we lose out on the blessings that come to us in Christ. Not the salvation ones, but things like our sense of being secure in God. We can be shaken in that sense of our assurance when we're in sin, in persistent sin. Uh, we lose out because there are discipline, disciplines that God will bring that, that brings pain to us to call us away from the sin. And let's just be honest, there are just sins that we commit that have natural consequences that just come with doing wrong things that we will have to undergo. There's fair warning, though. There always is. In verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's saying, make no mistake, what you saw happen to the northern kingdom will happen to you if you continue to rebel. That's what he's telling them. And I guess to put it connected or connected to today, if we refuse, if we rebel, God will bring discipline to us and upon us so that we would repent and follow him. We're redeemed because of the obedience of Christ in the ways that we have failed who cleanses us and gives us his righteousness. That's, again, what Isaiah says in chapter 53. He says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities, our iniquities. We receive his righteousness, and he receives our iniquities, and he pays for them. Now, because of Christ in us, we can obey God. Without obedience, we miss out on blessings. And without obedience, the cycle begins back at the beginning as God calls us to repent. You know, this passage is about a need for self-awareness. It's about honesty concerning our sin. There was a a wedding that I attended a long time ago uh, in western New York, and it was near the Niagara River. It was a beautiful setting If you were staring out at the Niagara River, to the left, you could see the mist of Niagara Falls. To the right, there's this kind of iconic bridge that goes over the river, and you could see that. There were some boats out there. There were fish flipping around, and there were seagulls everywhere flying, trying to eat the fish. It was just a beautiful picture. And you had this platform that was set up where the the preacher would be, and the the bridal party, and the groomsmen would be there, and the bride and the groom. That was the, the, the anticipation for them all to come down the aisle that was made between these outdoor chairs. The bridesmaids were all in the back in a kind of a tent so people can see them. The groomsmen, where I was, we were all uh, in the tent that was up near the river, and I was standing in the back. I wasn't in the party itself. I was just there helping, and I could see the, the groomsmen lined up, all with dark suits on, and the, and the nervous groom was right in front. 
in a tent so that the people that hundreds of people were coming to this wedding, uh, they, at just the right moment, there'd be a queue. And of course, the groom and the groomsmen would walk out and stand up in the front and wait for another queue for the, bride, for the bridesmaids to come down. And then the bride, it was a beautifully planned picture. And here we're standing. We're stepped outside of the tent. We're there for just a little bit, trying to hear the music to know when to go forward. And a seagull. Yep. A seagull, a big seagull. Deposited on the groom. Now it hit the back of his head and his collar and on his black suit. It was very obvious to everyone sitting behind him, but he didn't even notice. He was maybe nervous enough, didn't even feel it. And we're all watching him, and of course his buddies are laughing. They think it's kind of funny. And then the cue happens for us to go out, or for them to go out. And I thought to myself at that moment, isn't anybody going to tell him that he's dirty? That's what Isaiah is doing for us. But Isaiah is also telling us where we can get clean. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for breaking through our self-protection and excuses to give us the truth. The good news you provide in Jesus Christ is truly cleansing. I ask for a renewed sense of your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Lord, it is hard to hear about our sin and our rebellion, but your amazing grace sounds so sweet as the answer to our sin. We come to you seeking your constant work of grace in our lives, and I pray that everybody here uh, would be found in Christ and trusting in Christ and having a sense of relief knowing that you have shown us the truth and given us what we need to lay hold of this so that we might glorify you through the obedience then you work in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.